What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. Lutheran Public Radio Choir with the hymn, O Christ, our true and only light. Let those afar now hear your voice and in your fold with us rejoice. There's a mission emphasis this coming Sunday, and it begins, well, at the beginning, Jesus calling his first disciples, Peter and Andrew and James and John, four of those he would call who would eventually go to all the nations and make disciples in Jesus' name by baptizing and teaching. Welcome back to Issues Etc., coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. It's time to look forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, the third Sunday after the Epiphany. Pastor Sean Denzer joins us. He's Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, welcome back. Great to be back. So you say that the church calendar, in a kind of a general sense, is the mixture of two ideas. What do you mean? Well, it's almost two calendars, so the the Sundays are definitely patterned after the life of Christ, certainly in the first half, and then it goes into the teaching in the second half. And that's trying to be chronological in the path of the Gospels, but kind of compressed, because obviously they're at least three years long, plus longer if you consider Christ's birth, and we're trying to do that in half a year. The other is an actual calendar that corresponds to dates, based on historical events related to particularly saints and sometimes to Jesus. And that's Christmas, Easter, and a few of the other things. And that gives us a problem because sometimes they end up getting out of order, or at least it appears like that because it's close enough. I mean, the church has never been a stickler for keeping the history and the facts separate from the theological significance that they hold. And to have a reason for it is enough. We always want the best reason. And as modern people, we tend to lean toward the bare facts over the theological significance. And so I think that's what annoys us about the chronology getting mixed up. In the story of Christ's life, we have his birth, we have his childhood. We now have the beginning of his ministry is next in the Gospels. And that makes the the season of Epiphany in the three-year lectionary in particular focused on the beginning of Jesus' ministry. That's the real primary thing we see, and we notice this will be the second week of Jesus calling his disciples into the ministry. Theologically, the season of Epiphany is about the manifesting of the glory of God in the incarnate Jesus Christ. Traditionally, we hear about miracles and healings. We certainly had that last year and other years. We hear the definitive preaching statements and other revelations uh, that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the glory of Israel, that is, he's the Lord of Old Testament fame. 
But we also hear that he is a light to the Gentiles to enlighten them. That's seen in his teaching that we hear. It's seen in the reaction to Jesus Christ as he comes. And in the very fact that Christ is spending his time, especially in the earlier part of his teaching ministry, in Gentile and mixed territory up north in Israel's territory. So the Feast of the Magi, Epiphany, and the Feast of the Purification, 40 days after Christmas, really do kind of govern this. And you can almost see Simeon's song, that phrase, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of his people Israel, really capturing in a simple phrase what the themes of Epiphany theologically really are. That means that there's going to be some events out of order, right? We're always going to hear about the purification of Mary and the presentation of Jesus in the temple 40 days after Christmas by the calendar, even though we're going to be well past it as we are already in the life of Jesus, where we're already into him as an adult calling the disciples to the ministry. In fact, we're going to have another thing out of order that today we're going to hear about him calling the fishermen, including St. Peter after he calls Nathaniel. And John's gospel that we heard last week actually has it the other way around, that Nathaniel's called after Andrew and Simon come to Jesus and follow him. And all of this happens, of course, after the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, after his baptism, and we're still waiting to hear about the temptation at the beginning of Lent. Well, that means that today's main scripture passages definitely might be understood with the epiphany themes in mind, or look a little more clearly and plainly at what Jesus is doing at the beginning of his ministry. So as we're looking forward to Sunday morning this time, just know that the sermon might go in two directions. It could have the theological themes of the epiphany about the Gentiles and about the Lord revealing himself very strongly in front, or it might obscure those things and talk instead just about his early ministry and calling the disciples in particular. What are some connecting themes that we will be looking at here in the Propers for the coming Sunday? Well, we're going to have more of the same from last week, and that is that Jesus is calling everyone to repentance and to believe the gospel. In fact, today is the day we'll hear him say that very phrase, just as John the Baptist also preached it. We'll also hear about the immediacy of faith's response to the word. We're going to see that whether it's a call to repent and escape the wrath of God, as we'll hear in the Old Testament, or a call to follow Jesus, as we'll see in those fishermen disciples, Peter and James and John. We'll also have a third theme that I think is very interesting to show up at this time of year, which is an urgency of the end times. So we're going to hear about the wrath of God that hangs over sinners. We're going to hear about how his Messiah comes to bring in God's reign and his kingdom. This is all end times language, uh, something we could find all over the prophets and something we probably have already heard more of in Advent. But that, of course, includes not only the wrath and judgment of God, but also his salvation for sinners from that wrath, which comes through repentance and faith even now. And we'll definitely have a sense of immediacy, which is a theme in Mark's gospel always, an immediacy that characterizes the Christians who live in these last days right now. And our epistle in particular will bring that out. The intro it is from Psalm 113. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. 
He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with the princes of his people. Glory be to the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. So with the antiphon from verse 3 of Psalm 113, the fullness of the Lord's sway is in mind from as many places as the sun reaches, that is everywhere, that's how far the Lord's majesty and name reigns and is to actually be believed upon and offered praise. The whole psalm then urges our humility in light of this fact, as well as praise and marvel in all of the light of the Lord's uniqueness among the gods. We don't hear in particular about those other gods in this psalm, but it's always kind of there. What makes this Lord unique? Well, he's high above the heavens. What makes him unique? That his name is like no other. His span and his rule is from everywhere the sun goes. That's not some local deity or idol, as of course our Lord is not. In the end, though, what I think is very beautiful in hearing the rest of the psalm we see that it is his mercy, even more than his power and might, that is reigning over us and that is eliciting this marveling from us. So some psalms certainly extol how God's better than everyone else. But in this psalm, it is, here's how he is surpassing all the other gods, that he alone has mercy. Our cutting of this psalm into little bits for the intro, it highlights the Lord over all the nations, that he's bringing them up from the lowliness into the seats of honor. This is a fine introduction to our Old Testament reading from Jonah, where he is speaking to the people of Nineveh, where all of those pagan kings, everybody from the lowest to the highest, sits in the ash heap of repentance. They actually hear the call to repentance and they are brought to believe. And all of this, of course, is in foreshadowing of the Messiah's mission to Galilee of the Gentiles. How does the collect read? Almighty and everlasting God, mercifully look upon our infirmities and stretch forth the hand of your majesty to heal and defend us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This collect originally matches uh, with the healing of the leper and the healing of the centurion's son when he comes and, and shows great faith as a Gentile before Christ, and Christ marvels at his faith. So it's used to being uh, prayed, I suppose you could say, when we're thinking about the Lord's Gentile mission. And I think you see something of that there, that his majesty, his hand, stretches over who? everyone, over everyone. He is the almighty and everlasting God over all people. Now, there's no infirmity or healing of that infirmity in today's readings, except, I suppose, for the underlying malady of sin and all of the temptations of the devil, which for our purposes, we ought to always see behind even the physical healings of Jesus, that the Lord not only addresses the symptoms, but he is here ultimately to address the root cause of sin, root cause of all disease and suffering, which is sin itself, that he will forgive it, that he will atone for it by his death. So I think in that sense, this prayer uh, ought to be prayed. And following our intro, I think we also should pray it with a delight, as I mentioned before, that our Lord's power is exercised in this way, that he shows mercy, that he spares those who repent, as we're about to hear in the Old Testament reading, or as our collect has it, that he's the almighty and everlasting God that does what? He looks with mercy on those who call to him. 
We will get to that Old Testament reading, Jonah 3, after the break. We are looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. Come join LCMS Worship for the Institute on Liturgy, Preaching, and Church Music, July 9th through the 12th, 2024, at Concordia University, Nebraska. We'll gather under the theme, The Songs of Deliverance, and focus on the Psalms together. Everything you need to know is at lcms.org slash worship institute, and you can look for registration information in the early part of 2024. That's lcms.org slash worship institute, God's mission right where you are. Keeping the message straight. Getting the message out. You're listening to Issues Etc. Our Lord Jesus Christ may have ascended, but you can find Him at Lutheran Church of the Ascension in Atlanta, where He is ever-present in His Word and Sacraments. Join us for the Divine Service on Sundays at 10 a.m. and Bible Study at 9 a.m. Ascension is a distinctively confessional Lutheran Church located in the Buckhead neighborhood of Atlanta, Georgia. Visit us on the web at ascension-lcms.com. A blind sinner is carried to baptism administered by a pastor. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. That was the epiphany event where our eyes were opened to see the amazing grace of God in the very face of Jesus. The 2024 Institute on Liturgy, Preaching, and Church Music is July 9th through the 12th at Concordia University, Nebraska. This conference will feature fresh and perennial topics on music, leadership, Preaching, pastoral care, art, and spiritual growth in Lutheran worship. Learn more at lcms.org slash worship, lcms.org slash worship. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. You mentioned the Old Testament reading, Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 and 10. Yes, we're going to come in here after Jonah's been spit out by the fish, after he's prayed that psalm in the belly and gone finally to the task the Lord set him to, beginning in chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. 
We skip a bit to verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Okay, so we end up getting with our small section of Jonah, just the isolated story of this public call to repentance and then the people's response to it, and in fact, the Lord's relenting according to his word. In the whole grand scheme of Jonah's book, which, I mean, it's such a wonderful tale that really focuses in on Jonah as a figure, which is a tragic figure, not really a heroic story of his victory. This is the first place it goes right. This is the second time the Lord has called him to do this task. Here, he does it according to the word, sounds like Simeon, listening to the Lord's word. And yet that's obviously not the whole story. So thankfully, we read the Bible on our own as well and remember all the other things. What we do have is maybe the unlikely event that the people listen to Jonah. I don't know if his sermon was as short as it sounds in here, where it's just the judgment part. There's no repent and uh, things will go better for you. There's no real call to lead the people of Nineveh into the gospel and into the Lord's word. He just kind of tosses out, you're all doomed. And yet they respond to the Lord's word by believing it, by taking it to heart, by heeding this call to repentance, and uh, then by repenting of their sin in a very public and dramatic fashion. And notice from greatest to least means the kings, the powerful people in this great and utterly pagan city, also down to the least of them. Jonah's message isn't that clear invitation to salvation, and yet the people seek the Lord's mercy and they turn from their evil. And notice the way it puts it, that the Lord relents of what he had promised. We have heard this language before in the scriptures. We've heard it when Moses interceded for the people of Israel. God was going to wipe them out and make a new nation from Moses. And Moses said what? He said, nope, you, you got to keep your promises, God. You can't let the Egyptians laugh at us now. Moses interceded for the people and the Lord relented of what he had said. This is the way that the Lord addresses us. He lays out his wrath in order that we would be called to repentance because it is his deep desire to have mercy on these people. So despite Jonah's personal struggles with his ministry, his unwillingness to heed the Lord's word, we've zoomed in on maybe just this one little part. For the sake of our gospel reading, we're going to see the message of Jesus is just as compact, at least as Mark presents it, but that it comes with all of the Lord's promise. And, and there we're going to hear him not just talk about repentance and judgment, but also that everyone should come and believe the gospel because the time is fulfilled. The psalm for this coming Sunday is from Psalm 62. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock. My refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. 
Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they're together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. I think it's fascinating that this was the choice as the psalm to comment on the Old Testament reading. In its original context, it certainly is a prayer of an Israelite speaking about everyone who's attacking him, could even be David, right? All of the opponents who don't trust in God attacking me so that I'm left with no one to trust in except for the Lord himself. I certainly am not going to try and swindle my way out of it by turning to evil to combat other evil. I'm going to trust in the Lord. But in the Old Testament reading we have today, honestly, this is the voice of the king of Nineveh. This is the voice of all his people who, when called to repentance, take up the Lord as their trust. As it says in there, who knows, maybe the Lord will actually hear and relent of his disaster that he said. So the person who heeds the call, the person who believes the Lord's word in our Old Testament reading is not an Israelite at all, but is that heathen nation of Assyria in their town of Nineveh. In fact, if we were to look at the attackers, the people who take pleasure in falsehood, who say one thing, but in their heart they have some other idea, we'd have to say, knowing the rest of the story of Jonah, that's Jonah who doesn't really want the Lord's word to come to fruition and have the people of Nineveh be called to rescue. But I'd like to zoom especially in onto verse 9. So verse 9 says that the low are but a breath, the high estate are but a delusion, and they go up in the balances light. So you have to envision here a scale where you could put two equal weights and it would be balanced, or you could put a really heavy thing here, and then the other one would just go whoop right up high. They say here that if you were to put all these wonderful people, whether they're low and humble or whether they're high and mighty kings, they're as nothing compared to their sins, compared to God, compared to the forces of the Lord's word. They're of no consequence. Continuing to speak about the power of God. Uh, certainly, we then should not be high-minded. We certainly shouldn't turn to wicked things. We should turn away from them. But notice then, this does encapsulate Nineveh's response. Their repentance exempted no one. High positions, low positions alike, all were called to repentance. And that's exactly the way the Lord calls us. Many have observed that the communion rail is a place where we see great kings, rich people, and uh, you know the poorest of people kneeling together, both to receive the same body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ for the same forgiveness. This is the sense in which we all are brought to the same level before his wrath, before his law, but also that we receive his great salvation, whether poor or rich. This is beautiful. And it's so beautiful, in fact, that it needs to be heard twice. So that's what it says in verse 11 and 12, that uh, here, here's the message that's worth saying twice. Power belongs to God. Okay, obviously he makes us look like light as a feather and of no consequence. But notice what verse 12 says. And this is, I would say, a synonym for that power that belongs to God. That to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Again, the great and almighty power of our God is that he has mercy, which is what his message of repentance 
is aiming toward, that we would be forgiven, be turned away from the evil that destroys us, and uh, be returned to him who is a fortress and a refuge for us. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. We will come to the Epistle reading in 1 Corinthians 7 next. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue in Titus with qualifications for elders, rebuke them sharply, sound doctrine, grace of God, and the washing of regeneration. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Church music directors can find a new community at Prelude to Postlude, the CPH Music blog. Learn helpful tips for managing music ministry and involving members, and meet the composers of some of your favorite new pieces. Plus, find suggestions of music to use for special services, and preview some of our newest works with free samples you can use at your church. Visit us at preludetopostlude.org. Memorial Press's award-winning curriculum is used by homeschoolers all over the world. Their classical Christian education materials provide everything you need for kindergarten through 12th grade, including books, guides, lesson plans, and instructional videos. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Christological. Creedal. Confessional. You're listening to Issues Etc. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. We are looking forward to the third Sunday after the Epiphany, according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Sean, for the epistle for this coming Sunday, we continue our reading through 1 Corinthians 7. Yeah, and we've skipped a lot, and the context is pretty important, but let's hear what we have, starting at verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers, writes Paul. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the married or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. 
I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, I've read the full amount, uh, also have the option to end at verse 31, which I think is much tighter focused on this end times theme and what then our immediacy of life ought to be, uh, that the present form of this world is passing away. But we see, and, and we'd see also if we read what came before this, that Paul is directing his thoughts especially at marriage, although there certainly are other applications to the principles he is trying to express to them. And that's his rule that he has in the churches, that everyone ought to live the life to which God has called them. He's thinking especially that if there's any great question, live as you were when you became a Christian. And he speaks here, of course, about those who who have come to the faith and yet maybe have an unbelieving spouse, for example, although that part is not in today's reading. How do we live the life that God has called us to? Well, it's defined by his commandments, and it's defined by the stations in life that he has given us. That means it's not defined, by the way, by our feelings or by our passions that might lead us one way or another. But it is defined by the nature of humanity, and that's what brings up this question of whether it's better to remain a celibate single person or whether we ought to enter into marriage. And Paul here is saying, I want you to be free from anxieties, and let's look at the reality of the anxieties that are present for a married person. They must be concerned about their family life. This is the way God has ordained marriage, that they are the two have become one flesh, therefore they share all concerns in life and care for one another and love for one another and submission to one another, as we see elsewhere in the epistles. And that means that the gift of celibacy, that, that you actually would be able to live an unmarried life with no passions getting in the way, this is a, a unique gift of God, as Jesus himself says in Matthew's gospel. And Paul says elsewhere in the close proximity to this, that it would be better to be married than to try and live a celibate life while burning with passion, unable to restrain yourself. We can think back to the Reformation and the Lutheran objection to monasteries was especially that people had to make their vows of celibacy when they were prepubescent, before they'd ever had to deal with any of these passions that are common to mankind. And therefore, they were making a pledge that they didn't know if they had the spiritual gift of celibacy in order to maintain. And then the question of are these vows before God or vows before other men begins to burden the conscience when they discover, I really am a person who probably ought to be married. And that's why we're opposed to that sort of thing. How are we to take this then? Well, certainly what it expresses, especially as we go through more than just husbands and wives, but also the question of how do we relate to an age where our mourning looks different? Our rejoicing is as though we were not rejoicing, or our buying and dealing is as if we didn't have to deal with this world. What Paul is saying is our relationship with the passing age, everything that is wrapped up in its own life apart from God, that needs to be a tenuous relationship. This world, especially insofar as it does not believe in Christ Jesus, has expectations and wants and desires and passions and rules and traditions of its own. 
And those are powerful forces that will try to grasp us. Paul calls them elsewhere deceitful and empty philosophies and uh, elementary principles of the world. And they can come in all sorts of of forms. And they have an immense peer pressure on us, you might say, to get us to fit in with what they're doing. We're not to be enslaved by those expectations, by those commonalities of the unbelieving world, whatever culture or nation we happen to live in. So let's look at some of these examples Paul's given us. We don't mourn like others do. We mourn with hope when it seems entirely reasonable to be hopeless about death because death can't be conquered, except if you're a Christian, right? Because Christ has conquered death. Therefore, our mourning looks very different than the rest of the world's. Likewise, our merrymaking which Christians have just come through a great season of merrymaking and Christmas and Epiphany. Yet it's tempered, isn't it, by the Lord's word? Certainly we are sober in our uh, merrymaking, but also that we're honest about life. It's not all merrymaking all the time. There is a season for fasting, for repentance, as we heard in the Old Testament reading. And yet that is together with our rejoicing. We're able to hold that together because of Christ Jesus. He's our joy. Likewise, we don't deal and buy as if our life depended on it, or as the saying goes, as if we make our own living. We live in a new age, in the end times, as we're about to hear about in Jesus' great proclamation at the beginning of his ministry, repent, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. We're living in that age, the age of the kingdom of God. Thus, it's incumbent on Christians, perhaps not always in a uniform way, as you say, some can be celibate, some can be married, but in some way that we expect to live and look different from others. And as Paul says elsewhere, that is going to bring a judgment on us from the culture surrounding us, from the unbelievers surrounding us. And how are we going to bear up under that? We'll bear up under that confident in Christ Jesus and in some ways be indifferent to the judgment that the uh, this passing age has for us. Our anxieties that come from the Lord and his commands, even if that divides our attention between a family, would still be far better than to be most concerned about the anxieties laid upon us by the rest of the world uh, that does not believe in Christ Jesus. Those anxieties are not worth being anxious about. The ones that the Lord gives, he also provides his spirit and what is needed to bear with them and to uh, live in the gospel that he's given us. What are the gradual and verse? Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. And the verse adds, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We've heard this gradual before, continuing in the epiphany season, all nations, that's all peoples, especially the Gentiles, maybe even those from Nineveh and Assyria, recognize the steadfast love of God and learn to see that as his great power. We add then the words from Mark 1.15. These are, you might say, the summary of Jesus preaching. His opening sermon is repent and believe the gospel. And why? because the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the sandwich board that the street preachers always have, right? Repent for the end is near. 
That's a quote from John the Baptist. It's also a quote, as we see from Jesus, who echoes the exact same sermon. But what Jesus is saying here is not just the world is about to end. He is saying the world and its end is here now. And notice, it's not focused on the all the revelation, uh, apocalyptic, fearful things. It's focusing on the fact that everything is accomplished and fulfilled. The time is right, and the reign or kingdom of God is here and at hand. He's speaking about himself. With Jesus and his arrival on the scene, the kingdom of God is begun and is at hand, is close to you. That's why he's saying, repent. And notice, not just uh, in the simple form that Jonah said, I guess you guys are doomed, the wrath is coming, but repent because I have come to give you the good news, the victory. We'll talk more about that here when we get to our gospel reading. This is Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Everything you need to know about Lutheran worship can be found in the January edition of the Lutheran Witness Magazine. An annual print and digital subscription is less than $25. For more information, visit cph.org witness or call Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040, the Lutheran Witness Magazine. We'll be into the Gospel reading in Mark chapter 1 next. Here's an easy way for you to help us cast ChristNet on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review the Issues Etc. podcast with your podcast provider. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us reach more listeners in 2024. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. If you appreciate Issues Etc., our 24-7 music and talk stations, and our daily verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, please include a bequest in your will or trust for these worldwide media resources. A bequest allows you to receive an estate tax charitable deduction and reduces the tax burden on your family. Ensure your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren the opportunity to listen by including a bequest in your will or trust for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, and the Word of the Lord endures forever. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod cares deeply for those who protect our nation. Are you or a loved one currently serving? Ministry to the Armed Forces would like to help. We provide devotional literature to encourage faith. Send your mailing address to lcmschaps at lcms.org or call us at 314-996-1337. Those in uniform are comforted with Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and He helps me. Hello, this is Roy Askins with The Lutheran Witness. You've heard me talk about all the great content we publish in the print magazine of The Lutheran Witness, but I wanted to share with you that we have even more online. Visit our website, witness.lcms.org, where you'll hear even more content on worship this month in particular from Cantor Phil Magnus. We also have a series on literature right now going on and a series on church art with much more planned in the future. You can get all that for free on witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Casting Christ's net on the internet.
You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Calvary Lutheran, Indianapolis, Indiana. Faith Lutheran, Rogue River, Oregon. Hope Lutheran, Hampton, Virginia. Lamb of God Lutheran, Papillion, Nebraska. Our Redeemer Lutheran, Cedar Falls, Iowa. Prince of Peace Lutheran, San Diego, California. Shepherd of the Valley Lutheran, Perrysburg, Ohio. St. Paul Lutheran, Chatfield, Minnesota. The Good Shepherd Lutheran, Inglewood, California. And Zion Lutheran, Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We are looking forward to Sunday morning, the third Sunday after the Epiphany with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, take us into the Gospel reading in Mark 1, 14-20. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the Gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So part of this at the beginning, we've heard already this year, it's repeated from the baptism. We're going to hear most of this again also on Lent 1 when we hear about the temptation. Christ comes out of his fasting in the desert, tempting by the devil, and into his ministry in Galilee of the Gentiles. Remember, that phrase is not a phrase from the New Testament, from the Old Testament, that the land of Zebulun and Naphtali in kind of the north coastland countries of Israel belongs to the Gentiles. Even Isaiah prophesied this, that this would be the area first wiped out by Assyria, notice the connection to Nineveh in our Old Testament, and would become Gentile territory. And in the time of Jesus, it was the same way. The, the Jews were there, but they were not the majority by any means. The Gentiles are everywhere in Galilee. And yet Jesus comes to do what? To preach the gospel of God. We heard earlier, like on Epiphany, that the coastlands will be glad. We've always interpreted this in the Christian church as the message of Jesus, very literally his own feet and ministry coming to this coastal Gentile territory to do his ministry. And we see this all in the Gospels, that despite the repeated admonition to the disciples, and even sometimes to those Gentile peoples, that Jesus has not come for them. He's come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Nevertheless, the Gospel is heard, the Spirit is at work in it, and the Lord himself, as it were, has to marvel at look at how the Gentiles are rising up in faith, trusting in me, hearing the Gospel, and 
tragically, better than the, the Jews seem to be doing. So what does he say? What is his gospel? It's that the kingdom is at hand in his own presence. The time of the Messiah and the Savior is at hand. It's been accomplished, he says. The time is fulfilled. Certainly that prophecy about the coastlands and Galilee of the Gentiles from Isaiah, but simply all of time now comes to its fulfillment in Jesus. We're familiar with this word that Jesus utters from the cross, that it is finished. All of that is connected here as well, that the fullness of time has come, as we heard back in the Christmas season from St. Paul. It's all coming to a head in Jesus' own presence. Thus, it demands something from us. This is the visitation that Zechariah spoke of. Here is the Lord. What then is our response? Well, this is what John prepared us for that we would repent, that we would recognize our own sins, that he's not here because we're worthy and we've caused him to sprout up by our righteousness, but he's here to exercise his own righteousness. The question is, will that be for our judgment and condemnation, or will it be for our redemption and rescue? It should be the latter. That's why those who repent are called also to believe in the gospel. That word might be worth talking about too. What does the word gospel mean? It has a number of meanings. Kind of the literal meaning is the good news or the good report, as you've heard. That's going to be important here. Just recognize that we also use the word gospel to refer to the first four books of the New Testament as a genre of books, like there are novels and there are short stories, there are history books and there are letters, epistles, and there are gospels, these four books that talk about the life and work of Jesus. And then there's the use that we as Lutherans want to bring out, which is drawn from the scriptures, that there is a distinction between the law of God, his commands, and the gospel, which are the promises of forgiveness and life and salvation in Christ Jesus. Generally speaking, the word gospel as it was used at this time is to give an announcement of victory, usually after a battle. You know, somebody sends the runner to tell everybody at home, guess what? We defeated the enemy. You can expect a parade when our king returns with all the defeated enemies in tow, but this is great news. You should have just the same amount of joy as the soldiers on the field have because we've won the day. So this is what we mean when we say the gospel gives life, the gospel forgives. It's the announcement of Christ's conquering of the devil, his defeating of the law's accusations against us also by his death. Very interesting that this would be the first word out of Jesus' mouth right after he directly comes from his temptation in the wilderness. He's battled Satan. He's defeated all of his temptations. He's proven that, no, I am the king. I am the beloved son of the father. And you heard at the baptism too. And therefore, I am the one who now reigns. There's no one to oppose me if the devil can't oppose me. So the one who finds refuge in me has refuge indeed. So the core of this message then, repent and believe the gospel, no different than John the Baptist, except that it finds its fulfillment in this one preaching. John comes as a forerunner, as a groom's man, but Jesus himself is the bridegroom. He is the fulfillment of it. He is the Christ, as we've heard John utter already. Jesus is the one who's going to work this gospel. He's going to win this victory, and he's going to be showing his mercy to all of the penitents. Might be worth for a second just comparing this with a portion of John 1 that preceded last week's reading, 
because it is a call of Andrew and Simon into the ministry also to be disciples of Jesus. And it's somewhat different, and that sometimes causes people confusion. So in John's gospel, we see that Andrew is a student of John the Baptist. And when he is told that, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he peels off, he finds his brother Simon and says, behold, we found the Messiah, brings him to Jesus. We also have a slightly different version in Luke's gospel where we get a story about Jesus coming to the water with the boats. We see that Simon is fishing and uh, uh, he has that great catch of fish and James and John are next to him and kind of call over the boats and uh, biggest catch they've ever had. And Jesus says, great, leave that all behind. You're going to be fishers of men. Follow me. And they do. So how do we deal with these differences? Well, first of all, I should say it is not impossible at all to reconcile these, especially since John doesn't even use that word, follow me, that is so important in the synoptic gospels. He's just not zooming in on that interaction at all. Like Nathaniel, we don't know if this is a one-time meeting of Jesus. He, he came, they never saw Jesus before, and he says, follow me, and that's the only word that was ever exchanged. It seems likely that there probably were more than one meeting together. But most of all, I think the immediacy is what helps us. In what way and for what purpose does Mark say, immediately they left the boats, they followed him? He means to say that their listening and their acting followed immediately. Just as we heard expressed in Jonah's passage, that when he preached that the wrath is coming, they had a response. And the response was immediate, right? Doesn't mean that there was only one little sermon. Immediately he said two words, and that was the end of the sermon. But does mean that the response to that in faith and in action was quick and immediate and without hesitation. So it didn't happen spontaneously. And I think that's where Luke 5 really does open it up and show how Simon in particular was brought to Christ to follow him through repentance, through something that revealed his sin to him, made him say an astonishing thing, I'm a sinful man, Lord, I would almost have you depart from me. But Christ says, no, that's not how it's going to go at all. I need you close to me. Believe the gospel also, Peter, and come and follow me. Why Mark's unique emphasis then? Why is he always talking about this immediacy? Well, the kingdom is at hand, right? In Christ Jesus, there's no mediators. Moses, we're not needing that anymore. We are hearing the very words of God coming from his own mouth in flesh incarnate. And thus the Lord's word calls these disciples without any hesitancy on their part. What should we make of this phrase, fishers of men? Interesting. It surely is connected to their profession. These are fishermen. I suppose Jesus is saying, all right, I've got slightly a change of task, but it's connected especially to proclaiming and announcing the kingdom. So notice in our gospel reading, Jesus comes proclaiming and not as a side event, but as part of that, he is calling the disciples into this ministry. We consider that the, the office of the holy ministry is a continuation of the apostolic ministry. It isn't a continuation in the sense that Peter laid his hand and found a, a disciple to follow him, and he found kind of like a pyramid scheme, but it's a continuation in the sense that the Lord has called those men to be his disciples and then to be sent out to proclaim his word in the same way he continues to call ministers to speak his word today. 
to announce the kingdom that is at hand that Jesus by his work has accomplished. There's a very interesting passage in Jeremiah that speaks the same way about fishers of men, although interestingly, it's quite negative. In Jeremiah 16, 16, he's going to send out many fishers, but they're going to be fishing by calling out sinners, by repaying iniquity and punishing those who have scattered his people Israel. But interestingly, it follows on the heels of the Lord bringing everyone out of the lands from which he had driven them. We've heard that in the past already. As the Lord lives, he has brought up his people out of the places where he drove them. That's the kind of catching we're talking about with these fishers of men then. It's not only destroying people, but it's catching them, bringing them in. Then in Jeremiah, it shifts to an expression of the Lord's confidence that sounds almost exactly like our Psalm 62 today, that it includes the voice of the Gentiles who are coming to God, who are casting aside their worthless idols and admitting that their fathers have inherited lies, and we now want to acknowledge the name of the Lord and know you. This is the sort of proclamation that Jesus is giving, and thus the same kind of fishing that his apostles and his ministers are going to be doing. They're going to be preaching a word that strikes sinners, strikes those who should know better, like Jews, and must be called away from their sins and rejection of God's word that's native to them. But it's also going to call those who are ignorant and need to be enlightened, those like the city of Nineveh, who, who need to know that their lifestyle is turned away from God and to turn away from those wicked things, but also that they would know the true Lord and be brought into his reign, under his sway. So already we're seeing, even though the Lord has not sent his apostles to all the Gentiles, we're seeing the fact that his ministry is for all people, that his work of Repentance for the forgiveness of sins is, as Luke's gospel says, to be preached to all nations. We might just also mention that Matthew 13 mentions a parable of the fishing net. All the fish are caught, all different kinds. They're sorted, and that's the end when the angels come at the last day. So Christ's preaching and his call of the disciples also to continue that preaching, these are all indications that the time is fulfilled, as Jesus began by saying. This is the beginning of the end times. We should expect all of the prophets to be fulfilled in the ministry of this man, Jesus. And whatever is left unfulfilled are going to be those items about the final judgment when our Lord will return and will fulfill the rest of the prophecies. And notice what he's doing now, proclaiming repent and believe the gospel. This is, in fact, the very thing that prepares us to withstand the judgment at the last day, to trust in Christ Jesus, to have him as our refuge, as we heard in the intro, so that he'll continue even at the last day to be that refuge. What would you say about the hymn of the day, O Christ, our true and only light? This hymn is I would say, the absolute best Lutheran mission hymn. It was written during the time of great religious strife in the Thirty Years' War. And there's some evidence that may even have been based on a prayer by a Roman Catholic Jesuit, which is kind of interesting. But what it prays for is that Christ would be our light, perfect for the theme of epiphany, enlightening the Gentiles, but that he would not only be a light for those who don't know him, but that he would be a light that calls those who run away, call those who get dark in error, call those who are depressed and weak and threatened to fall away from him. And it is a quite 
tender hymn, I think, for those who have children or family members who are not part of the faith or who have strayed away from it. Anyone who's ever prayed, "Ah, I really wish this person knew Christ Jesus and would trust in him and believe in him. This is a perfect hymn to sing as a prayer. It's perfect for Epiphany, but it's also perfect, I think, for our private life when we have those in particular that we know need to receive and know the Lord Jesus and come through repentance and faith in the gospel under his kingdom, where he is a true refuge for his people. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, as usual, thank you very much. You're welcome. Wednesday on Issues Etc., we'll discuss the 81st Golden Globe Awards with Pastor Ted Geese and its media coverage of religion with Terry Mattingly. Then on Thursday, we'll talk with Dr. Jordan Cooper about five problems with the rapture. Jesus' message, the same as John the Baptist's message, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, and he's still making disciples, still calling disciples. In fact, we do nothing to call disciples except to preach the word. Jesus has made every disciple since the very first, and he'll make them all the way to the very last. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.